Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it was another positive day for the U.S. stock market continuing to chug along, even though the Dow finished slightly down 22 points. The S&P was higher. Russell 2000 rose to a new record high. The Nasdaq, I don't think a record, 8109 up 21 points. But we just closed out the month of August. And I read that this is the biggest August gain, percentage gain that the Nasdaq's had since 2000. The year 2000. And you all can remember what happened uh, shortly after uh, the year 2000 or in the year 2000 to the NASDAQ. It declined by approximately 80% from peak to trough. So the fact that we haven't had a month this strong since 2000 should give people pause. But again, everybody assumes that this time it's different, right? Even though this is already the longest bull market in history. Most people are acting as if it's just going to continue. I mean, a lot of people think that we're never going to have another bear market. Or if we do, it's so far into the future that there's no point in thinking about it. The same thing with a recession. Even though this is the second longest economic expansion ever, instead of people being worried that we're close to a recession, most people think that a recession is nowhere in sight. So just playing the probabilities, you would think that people should be worried. But people are betting that we're not going to have another recession and we're not going to have another bear market, maybe ever. I mean, I think it's a much safer bet to assume that we're going to have another recession. And if so, it's long overdue. It could start any minute. And we're going to have another bear market. And it's overdue. And it could start 
very quickly, but people are oblivious. Meanwhile, it's not like the whole stock market all around the world is you know going up in tandem with the U.S. It's not. You have a lot of emerging market getting clobbered. Stock markets all around the world are at decade lows. They're not just not making new highs. They're really getting beat up. And so this is not a situation where stocks all around the world are going up. You've got the U.S. stock market kind of going up all by itself because everybody perceives that the U.S. is the one strong market, the safest place to hide out. It's like the only game in town. If you want to be long stocks, well, you got to be long U.S. stocks because that's the market that's going up. But the U.S. market is going up because of so many misconceptions about the U.S. economy, about the efficacy of Fed policy, about the future trajectory of Fed policy. And when reality sets in, you're going to see the U.S. market tank. But at the same time, I think you're going to see foreign markets going way up. You know, a lot of people think that, well, you know, all the markets move in the same direction. So when the U.S. goes down, all the markets go down. That's not true. All the markets are going down now as the U.S. market is the only one that's going up. Well, in the future, the U.S. market's going to be coming down and all these foreign markets are going to be going up because what is causing so much problems for the rest of the world is the strength of the dollar and is the idea that the world is going to have to finance massive U.S. deficits. And so the U.S. is sucking up capital from all around the world. This is a giant crowding out effect particularly for emerging markets. And a lot of the emerging market economies, of course, they run current account deficits. They have relied on foreign funds flowing in, not to consume, but for capital investment. A lot of economic growth has been fueled by savings being invested from foreigners. And of course, a lot of the loans, right, are dollar-denominated loans. And the fact that the dollar is so strong is, is putting all these loans in jeopardy. People are worried about default. And so these emerging markets that have run current account deficits are having these currency problems. Today, the one that was in the news is Indonesia. Indonesian currency getting clobbered. I think the rupee is now about the lowest it's been or almost as low as it was in 1998, that's when we had the Asian economic crisis and all those uh, currencies were getting killed. Of course, they all had huge rallies, uh, 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up through 2008. And so we had massive bull markets in the emerging markets during that time. But during the late 1990s, they were all collapsing. And of course, the U.S. stock market kept going up at the same time. That was part of that bubble. In fact, the bull market that ended in 2000 was the longest bull market ever until this one. And so we just broke that record. And as I've been saying, we just had the longest bull market. It's going to be followed by the longest bear market, not only in duration, but in severity, if you want to measure it by a real loss in purchasing power, not just the dollar decline, but the decline priced in gold or priced in maybe other assets or foreign currencies. But all of these markets are under pressure. But when the dollar starts to fall, then all that's going to change. You know, it's ironic that the media, when they report about the currencies that are falling, they point to the fact 
that these countries have current account deficits, and that's why their currencies are falling. But they ignore the fact that the United States has a much larger current account deficit than any of these countries. So people who are selling these emerging market currencies because they have large current account deficits and then buying the U.S. dollar, well, they're buying the currency of a nation that has an even bigger current account deficit, not only bigger in terms of the number, which, of course, it's enormous, but even if you look at the percentages of our economy, but also the bigger difference is we still have really, really low interest rates on treasuries and U.S. debt. That is helping to keep our current account deficit lower because we don't have to pay as high an interest to all of our creditors. Well, what happens as interest rates really go up, that's going to put upward pressure on our current account deficit. But what's so pernicious about the U.S. current account deficit is we don't borrow for capital investment like these other economies. We borrow for consumption. We borrow to finance our trade deficit. So Americans are borrowing to consume. They're not borrowing to invest and produce. And when we have our currency crisis, our economy implodes because we know it's all based on spending. It's all based on buying foreign products uh, with, with cheap money and credit. And all that's going to come tumbling down. But as the dollar comes down, that is a giant relief for the rest of the world, all these emerging market economies and markets that are under so much pressure now because people falsely believe that the U.S. is never going to enter recession and the Fed's going to keep hiking and they're going to shrink the balance sheet. When that changes and the U.S. goes towards recession or into recession and rates come down and QE4 is launched, foreign stock markets are going to take off. But I think the U.S. market is going to fall. Even though the Fed is going to do more QE, which, of course, made the market rise when they started it last time, you have to realize that when the Fed launched QE1, the U.S. stock market had just collapsed. Right, 2008, the market got cut in half. And so when they went around and launched uh, QE1, you had an inexpensive market that the Fed was able to prop back up. But now you have a very, very expensive market that is priced for perfection. And when the Fed has to acknowledge a recession and reverse course, that is an admission that there is no perfection. In fact, a lot of the corporate earnings that people are anticipating are not going to show up. And of course, if corporations don't have any profits, the fact that they have lower taxes is meaningless because if they don't have any profits to tax, then what difference does it make what the rate is? But of course, if I'm right politically and Trump is out in 2021 and the Democrats are in, corporate taxes are going to be jacked way up. And, you know, incidentally, I just heard that the president's disapproval rating today is at the highest it's been of his presidency. So things are getting a lot more complicated. I know that the diehard Republicans, uh, Trump's base, they still support him, but you can't win re-election if all you get is your base. I mean, yes, if you can really energize your base to come out and vote for you, that helps. But you got to be able to get a lot of people uh, in the middle. You got to get a lot of uh, independence. And also, of course, if your disapproval rating is so high, then not only is your base motivated, but the other guy's base, the, the Democratic base, could be equally motivated to go out and vote against Trump if his disapproval rating is so high. So there's a lot of risk out there, economic, political risk, that everybody is ignoring. But in the meantime, you've got opportunities to buy these foreign currencies in foreign markets. And for people who think, hey, all the markets are going to be correlated, and so whatever happens in the U.S. is going to happen in the rest of the world, I think we've already 
uh, severed uh, that and we've decoupled. And right now, the decoupling is working in favor of the U.S. as the U.S. market rises and you see uh, foreign markets going down. But the big move is going to be when the U.S. market tanks and the rest of the world booms, which again, people don't think that's possible. They think that we're the, the, the engine that drives the economy. I think we're the caboose that the global economy has to drag behind it. And I think it's going to be an enormous relief to the rest of the world not to have to finance our budget deficits, not to have to supply us with all these goods on credit, to be able to enjoy and consume those goods themselves and to be able to invest their savings locally in their own economies rather than lend them to the U.S. government so it can be spent or lend it to U.S. consumers so it can be spent. So this decoupling is going to happen, but before it does, that's when you want to go ahead and you know make sure that you've got your portfolio properly invested. Of course, the other thing that continues to drive the dollar, and the dollar index was up again today, back above 95. Gold was slightly higher today. We closed the week and the month just above uh, 1,200. I think not even 1,201, but you know, back above 1,200. It was higher this morning, but again, as the Indonesian rupee started to fall, you know, gold sold off. I mean, gold should be rising based on what's happening with all these currencies. And it is rising. In terms of emerging market currencies, the price of gold is soaring. It's just that with everybody so bullish on the dollar, it's making it harder for the dollar price of gold to rise. But one of the reasons for the optimism is this belief that America wins the trade war when we can't win the trade war. And you know, I don't know what's going to happen here with Canada we finished a week. There were some rumors that maybe we would get a deal because we had some kind of deal with Mexico. We still don't have one with Canada. There's all sorts of tariffs that are going to come in. You know, meanwhile, the European Union basically called Trump's bluff when it comes to tariffs. Remember, Donald Trump was saying that the only reason he wants tariffs is so that we can reduce tariffs, that higher tariffs now are a down payment on lower tariffs in the future. So the tariffs are an ends to a means, right? I don't. I want free trade, but I might have to have less free trade in the short run so that I can ultimately get freer trade in the long run. And he said, I don't want any tariffs. Well, the European Union came back out and said, okay, how about no tariffs on cars? We will eliminate all of our tariffs on cars if you eliminate all of your tariffs on cars, right? Trump said no. Now, wait a minute. If he wants no tariffs, well, that's a great deal. Now, the European Union didn't say, okay, no tariffs on anything. I don't know that we can ever get to that point. I mean, maybe they will, but I'm sure Trump would turn that down too. You know, and that proves that it's all talk, that he doesn't want tariffs because he wants free trade or fair trade. He wants tariffs because he wants to protect certain inefficient uh, U.S. businesses. That's, that's the real goal, and it's to protect uh, the jobs of certain individuals who may work for these inefficient businesses rather than trying to do what's in the best interest of the country. I think Trump probably knows if we eliminated our tariffs uh, in the United States in cars, you know, that would be a disaster. In fact, when the Europeans proposed eliminating tariffs, European auto stocks went up and American auto stocks went down. That shows you 
which companies benefit from no tariffs and which companies are worried. It's the American companies that are worried about no tariffs. I mean, look at the tariffs we have on uh, light trucks, pickup trucks. It's a 25% tariff. And so U.S. companies make a lot of money because it's too expensive for Americans to buy foreign pickup trucks. So they end up buying uh, domestic pickup trucks. But if we had no tariffs, then foreigners would come in here and take a big percentage of that market. Now, that would benefit American consumers who would have more choice. They could get better pickup trucks for less money, but that's not what Trump wants. And so when he had an opportunity to go to zero tariffs on cars, he, he turned it down. Now, some people can say, well, he's trying to leverage this. He wants all or nothing, right? He doesn't want to just take zero tariffs on cars. He wants zero tariffs across the board. That's going to be very hard. But, you know, why not get what you can? If they're willing to go to zero tariffs on one particular product, then do it. Because free trade benefits everybody. Every industry that has free trade, everybody benefits. Now, of course, if U.S. automakers are inefficient and they can't, produce cars competitively, well, then they, you know, if you get rid of the tariffs in the short run, that's going to create some problems. But in the long run, it would force the U.S. companies to be more efficient, to be more competitive and to make better trucks and to make them for less money if they had to compete uh, fairly with manufacturers around the world. You know, one thing that Trump did do uh, this week, and I'm usually been critical of President Trump. But one thing that he said that I think is a good idea is he wants to freeze federal pay uh, starting in 2019. Now, given the fact that he's already signed on to such massive increases in government spending, I think this is just maybe a political move to try to act like he's trying to be fiscally responsible uh, by freezing pay. But first of all, if you're going to freeze pay, why wait till 2019? I mean, maybe everyone's going to get a big raise in 2018. And then, you know, we're going to freeze the pay in 2019. Just freeze it right now. Although the main problem I have with a freeze is if you freeze pay, then you can't cut pay, right? A freeze would preclude a cut. And I think government workers are overpaid right now. And I think a lot of them are way overpaid. And so I don't want to freeze salaries when they're bloated. I want to cut salaries. That's what I like to see Donald Trump announce across the board pay cuts. And in fact, not just pay cuts, but payroll cuts. We have too many people who work for the federal government. And you know, if the unemployment rate is really so low right now, and there's all these jobs, right, and there's no workers to fill them, what a perfect opportunity to start laying off a bunch of government workers, because now they can go fill those jobs that the private sector uh, can't find workers for. Because the people who are working for the government, they're just, they're just making life worse for everybody. I mean, these are not jobs that we need. These are jobs that we'd be better off without. I mean, a lot of these government jobs are just adding to the bureaucratic red tape. They're slowing everything else down. They're a drain on the economy. Plus, government salaries have to be paid by the taxpayer. So when someone gets a government job, that, that comes out of my pocket or it comes out of everybody's pocket, all the taxpayers. When someone gets a job in the private sector, it doesn't cost the taxpayer anything. Right, because the guy that owns the business pays the salary. Well, the taxpayers have to pay for government workers, and of course, it's even worse now because we're running these huge deficits. So we're overpaying workers that we don't even need, and we're doing it by going deeper into debt. 
So obviously we're broke. We can't afford all the workers we have. So let's get rid of a bunch of them. And what better time to do it again? If the unemployment is so low, this is when you start firing government workers because it's going to be easier, right, in theory, for them to get jobs in the private sector when there's millions and millions of jobs that are going unfilled. Well, maybe some of the people who could do that work are collecting a, a check for the government. And maybe they're being overpaid by the government, so they don't want to quit their cushy government job to take a, a job where they actually have to work. Well, don't give them the choice. Fire them. And now they have to find a real job. And since supposedly there's plenty of real jobs out there. So that's what Trump should be doing, right? Making government smaller, reducing the headcount, right? You're fired, right? He was famous. He wanted to patent that, right? Remember when he was doing The Apprentice? He wanted a trademark or something. You're fired. Well, okay. Well, how about you're fired uh, as president? Start firing a lot of these bureaucrats. You don't need congressional approval to do that. He could just start firing people and making government leaner and meaner, right? Like he was running it like a private business. So I'll give him some credit for talking about freezing uh, pay, but he's not going far enough. Right. We got to cut pay and then we got to cut workers. But of course, all of this would be much, much worse. Right. If we had a, a Democratic president, a socialist president and a socialist Congress, which is something that I think is coming. But look at this bill that Bernie Sanders introduced. Right. He has a bill and he wants to require companies. And I'm not sure what the, the revenue has to be, but they're big companies, you know, like the Walmarts of the world and the Amazons. And well, obviously, you don't have to be that big because those are the biggest. But it's for big companies, right, not the small companies. Uh, but what the bill would require is if you are a company and you have employees that are also getting government benefits, maybe they're getting food stamps or something like that, that the company would have to pay a tax equal to whatever government benefits the employees uh, receive, right? And the whole idea is, hey, these companies are, are ripping off the taxpayer. They're not paying their workers enough money. Uh, and so because they're underpaying their workers, they knew they have to go get food stamps. And so we're going to make the employers pay. I mean, you're getting a free ride because, you know, we're feeding your workers. And so if you're not going to pay your employees enough to not need food stamps and then they go on food stamps, well, we're going to send the company a bill and make you pay for the food stamps. Right. This is the whole idea. This is one of the most idiotic ideas that you can pass because what is the effect, right? And this is something that liberals, you know, never seem to understand because they don't understand the consequences of their actions, right? That's why they're all about feeling and emotion and not about logic and reality. So if there was a law that said, if you hire somebody and if they receive any government benefits, then you're going to pay a tax equal to the amount of benefits that your workers receive, well, what employers are going to do is try not to hire any workers that may be on government benefits. They're not going to just pay everybody more. They're just going to avoid hiring anybody who may be on a government benefit. So it's just really like jacking up the minimum wage dramatically because you're basically saying you've got to pay somebody a wage that is equal to what they would also get if they augmented their salary with a food stamps or something else. So it's like a massive increase in the minimum wage. And so how would companies respond to that? Well, they would just hire fewer people. They would fire workers that they have in order to avoid having to pay that tax. And of course, since the government would 
have a, a, a number, whether it's an employee number or a revenue number before that requirement kicked in, well, then you would create an incentive for companies to stay smaller, to have you know fewer employees so that they don't fall within that, that mandate or to have less revenue. So it would keep companies from growing because they would try to avoid being subject to this draconian requirement. But this would be a disaster. But you know what? This is the exact type of nonsense that the Democrats are going to try if they have the opportunity to run the experiment. And of course, it's not even an experiment because in an experiment, you don't know how it's going to end, right? We know how this is going to end. I mean, socialism has been tried so many times that you don't have to try it again. You don't need to repeat a failed experiment over and over again, except the Democrats, the socialists, they don't realize that it's failed, or they somehow think that it's failed only because the right people weren't doing it. And so they'll do it again, right? The, the definition of insanity. So we're going to get some insane policies uh, in the United States in 2021, 2022, when we have the Democrats in charge and writing these kind of rules. Now, obviously, this ridiculous bill has no chance of becoming law, you know, while the Republicans control Congress. And certainly Donald Trump would not be dumb enough to sign such an asinine law. But Bernie Sanders, you know, so popular, the most popular Democrat, comes up with this nonsense idea and introduces it. And people think, you know, this is this is a good thing. This is a smart guy, right? He's a leader of the Democratic Party, and he wants this kind of nonsense. In fact, speaking about nonsense from the Democrats, in the state of California, they just introduced some legislation to mandate, I think, maybe all publicly traded companies that I guess are maybe if they're based in California, I guess they'd have to be California based companies for uh, the rule to be in effect. But it requires that they have at least one female board member, right? Because apparently there are a lot of companies that don't have any female board members. I mean, of course, some do, but they want to mandate that you have at least one. And some people might think, well, you know, sure, wouldn't it be nice if if boards had one female? Look, boards are not trying to exclude female members, right? Companies, when they're looking for people to sit on the board of directors, they're looking for people that, you know, are going to do a good job and, you know, have enough knowledge uh, of the industry or, you know, the company to serve on the board. And, And so it's not like they're, you know, it's like women need not apply. I mean, if there isn't a woman board member. It's because uh, there wasn't a, a woman that was as qualified as the guy that is sitting on the board. But, you know, if investors feel that they want women board members, they can protest, they can sell stock, or they can only invest in companies that have women on the boards. I mean, if that's what you want to do, I mean, let the free market determine if there's some kind of shareholder outrage based on the lack of women on boards, well, the shareholders can vote with their feet. And of course, you know, if companies were actually discriminating against women, right, and they were keeping female board members off the board because of sexism, well, that means there'd be all these highly qualified women that could sit on some board. And so they would go to some other companies and maybe they'd be a lot more successful because you have all these sharp women that the sexist companies are excluding uh, from board membership. But this is all about how the Democrats and the government want to take away freedom, take away individual liberty, take away the rights of people to choose what they want to do and let the government mandate. This is a quota, right? A quota system for boards. And of course, once the camel's nose is under the tent, and of course, 
that Campbell's been in the tent for a long time with the government uh, making these sorts of mandates. But, you know, first it's one female member. Well, then maybe it's two. Well, maybe it's 50% women that they're going to require. Or do you have to have at least one uh, African-American on the board? Do you have to have one, uh, you know, homosexual on the board or a transgender person? Or do I have to have somebody in a wheelchair? Or, I mean, what? I mean, how are they going to keep mandating certain types of people that have to sit on a board? How about just let the free market decide? Let private companies decide. Let their shareholders decide who they want to sit on the board. Don't use government force to mandate. You know, I got to laugh because California now is going, you know, all overboard on this transgender and you know you can't discriminate and you can't you know label anybody or say you're a man or say you're a woman right I mean you could just uh, decide for yourself you can you know you can uh, self-select what your gender is and so even if there's a man if he feels like a woman he feels like he's trapped in a woman's body then a man could just declare himself a woman and then everybody has to treat him like a woman or you know they could get sued well what if a male board member, right, at a California corporation decides that he's a woman. He feels like a woman and he's going to uh, decide that he's a woman and just self-select his gender and, and demand to be referred to as a woman. Now, would that count? Would that count as having a woman on the board? Or would California uh, basically violate its own laws and discriminate and say, well, that's not a real woman? We want a real woman on the board. Well, I thought there are no real women. I mean, that wouldn't that be discriminating? If I've got a guy on the board and he says he's a woman, who am I to question that? Right? What if, I mean, I could imagine somebody challenging this in a court in California where you have to have a woman on the board and, and they say, well, I got a woman. Here he is. I mean, here she is. You know, I mean, maybe he's going to be in a dress like, you know, Corporal Klinger on MASH. I mean, although I don't think you have to dress up as a woman to declare yourself a woman. I mean, what if I want to declare myself a woman, but I'm a lesbian, right? So I, I'm a very masculine woman, but I'm still a woman. And so therefore I should, I should qualify as a female board member. You know, I wonder if you can take this to its extremes. What if a guy gets fired from his job and then he sues and says, I want to sue you for sex discrimination. You fired me because I'm a woman. And they say, well, no, you're not a woman. Well, yes, I am. I'm a woman. And because I'm a woman, and because I feel like a woman, I identify as a woman, and you fired me, well, I, I now I get to qualify for special status, and I'm going to sue you because you fired me because I'm a woman. I mean, what if there's a guy, right, who's making less money than another guy? He could just declare that he's a woman and say, I'm going to file a lawsuit because you're underpaying me, because you're paying this guy this amount of money, and I'm a woman, and you're paying me less, right? Well, because you see where I'm going. Once you open up this can of worms, I don't know how California gets out of it. I mean, you know, what if a what if a you know a guy wants to apply for some kind of scholarship that's supposedly meant for women in California? Say, so, well, you know, I'm a woman. I'm qualified. You know, I'm applying. You know, you can't discriminate against me. You can't you can't check my chromosomes or you know try to look at my genitalia to determine my sex. You just got to listen to what I have to say, and you got to accept. Well, you know, the fact that I've declared myself a woman. So this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense. But this is the type of stuff that is going to happen if the the Democrats are in control. You know, meanwhile, another really ridiculous uh, news story that I heard the other day, and I guess this is also uh, out in California, right, where I think the head of the Democratic Party in California was calling for a boycott of In-N-Out Burger. 
because it came out that they donated money to Republicans. Maybe there was $25,000 donation to Republicans. And all of a sudden, oh, let's boycott this company because they're Republicans. I mean, that's a reason to boycott a business because the business owner Maybe a Republican. Now, of course, I think in and out Burger came out and said, look, we give to both parties, right? We give the Democrats and Republicans. But so what? Let's assume that they didn't. Let's assume that the guys that own in and out Burger decided that they wanted to support uh, a Republican candidate. Should all the Democrats boycott the business simply because it's owned by a, a Republican? I mean, is that what we've come down to? But, you know, I think it would be a good idea. In general, if Democrats decided to boycott all businesses that were owned by Republicans, just don't patronize them. So if there's a store that you normally shop in, if you find out that the owner is a Republican, don't shop there. Right? If there's a restaurant that you normally eat at and the owners are, don't eat there, right? just boycott every single business that is run by a Republican, but not just as a customer. Democrats in California should boycott Republican-owned businesses as employees, right? So ask your boss if he's a Republican. And if he is, just quit, right? Just boycott. Only work for Democrats if you're a Democrat. And only uh, patronize businesses that are run by Democrats. Because you know what? I think this would be a huge awakening for a lot of Democrats who would finally start to appreciate Republicans a little bit if they realized how many of the businesses that they take for granted, how many of the businesses that provide them with the goods and services that they need are run by Republicans, right? How many people are working for Republicans who count on a Republican to write their paycheck, right? As much as you want to bash, as much as the the workers want to bash the Republicans, a lot of the people who own the businesses they're working for, they're Republicans. How bad can they be, right? And of course, that would probably be worse for a lot of people than banning uh, businesses as customers if you had to ban them as employers, right? And then the Democrats might appreciate uh, the employers a little bit, which, you know, by the way, Labor Day is, is coming up on Monday. And the whole holiday, Labor Day, a lot of times, you know, it really annoys me that we just have a Labor Day. We don't have an Entrepreneur Day. We don't have a, you know, a, a, a day to celebrate uh, the small business owner, the boss, right? The employer. We're just celebrating and honoring the employee. And why is that? Because it's the entrepreneur. Those are the unsung heroes of the American economy. I mean, what do the workers do? They show up and they they do what they're told and they collect a paycheck. Now, yeah, I'm not saying that they don't make a contribution and that we couldn't have an economy if we didn't have people that were doing work. But of course, the assumption when you talk about workers, the assumption is that the employer, the boss, doesn't work. He just sits there and barks out orders. And if you look at the small businesses in general, the owner of the business works harder than anybody else. I mean, he's usually the first one there and he's the last one to leave, right? And of course, when someone owns a business, they don't have the luxury of collecting a paycheck. I mean, they get paid, but only if there's a profit, only if there's money left over after all the workers get a check and after the landlord gets a check. And if they borrowed money, they got to pay interest uh, to whoever loaned it to them. And they've got to buy all the equipment. They got to pay all the bills, right? If there's something left over, they get money. If there's nothing left over, they got nothing. So a lot of times you have these entrepreneurs who are working very hard and aren't making any money at all. Sometimes businesses lose money for years while the owner is working 18-hour days. So that's who we should be celebrating, but we don't do that. 
And why is that? Well, because the politicians know that if you want to get votes, you've got to pander to the masses, right? I mean, that's, again, I say this all the time, but they asked Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, because that's where the money is. Well, why do politicians try to get votes from the employees? Because that's where all the votes are. Most people are employees. They're not employers. They don't have the the guts. Uh, They don't want to take the risk. Uh, They don't have the know-how. Uh, to run a business. It's, you know, they can show up and follow instructions and collect a check, but try to make a business run, try to organize all the pieces and, and get it to work. I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do. And that's why most people don't even try. And a lot of people who try fail. I mean, a lot of businesses do not succeed. It probably, in fact, more businesses fail than succeed. So it's a very difficult thing to do. But the politicians aren't having a holiday to honor the, the boss, the entrepreneur, because There's not enough votes there. And of course, you know, these national holidays like Labor Day, right? Everybody gets the day off with pay. Well, that's great for the worker. Hey, I get it. I get my paycheck and I don't have to show up. Well, the boss doesn't necessarily like that. He has to pay all his workers not to show up. So all these paid holidays, right? The money to pay everybody not to work is coming out of the the boss. So it was up to the small businessman. He probably wouldn't even want a holiday, you know, entrepreneur day or, you know, boss day, because then he would have to give everybody another day off. So he understands the cost of uh, of the holiday. And of course, all that has to be, you know, built in. Uh, to the cost of running a business or paying wages. And of course, the other thing that I really don't like about Labor Day is the labor unions constantly trying to take credit for the gains that were delivered by capitalism, right? Because you hear all these guys on Labor Day, the union guys are going to come out and say, oh, you know, the American worker, you know, the unions are what did all this. I mean, the unions, you know, we have a, a weekend because of the unions. Uh, you got a 40-hour work week because of the unions. You've got benefits. You've got vacation. Like all the things that workers have, the unions take credit for uh, creating them, which is all a bunch of nonsense. The unions had absolutely nothing to do with any of that stuff. In fact, if it wasn't for the unions... We'd probably have three-day weekends by now or four-day weekends. Maybe the average work week would be you know, 30 hours instead of 40 hours. I think unions have gotten in the way. And of course, unions are not nearly as big as they used to be in the uh, private sector. I mean, I think they used to be about a third of workers were unionized, maybe more. And now it's probably 5%, if that, of the private sector is unionized. Why? Because the unions destroyed all the companies that they infected, right? Where all the unions are now is in the government. Right, all the workers that work for government, the unions went into the government. And of course, you can't drive the government out of business. So that's why all the unions, they represent government workers and the taxpayers are getting screwed. And I, I talked about this on a prior podcast. Even Franklin Delano Roosevelt was against public sector unions. And I don't want to go into it again. I forget which podcast I, I, I went into it. I spoke about it a lot. Uh, but th- this is a terrible thing. There should be no teachers union, firemen's union, police union. None of these should exist. If you want to work for the government, then there's no union, right? You want to get a union going into the private sector. And I'm not against uh, private sector unions, but I'm, but I am against a lot of the special protections that governments give unions that are unfair and basically amount to legalized extortion. But I recognize that the unions 
have not been responsible for the gains that workers have seen as far as you know more vacations or shorter uh, hours or uh, fewer days in the work week. What is responsible for that is increasing worker productivity. And the labor unions work against productivity. That's what labor unions do. They help reduce worker, I mean, productivity. It's the capitalist system. It's the free enterprise system that increases the productivity of labor. And by making labor productive and more productive, that's what frees it up. That's why child labor was eliminated. It wasn't because of the labor unions. It was capitalism. That's why women left the labor force. It was capitalism that increased the productivity of their husbands to the point where they didn't have to work. It was capitalism that increased the productivity of the fathers so their kids didn't have to work. All this stuff was happening as a natural byproduct of the free market system of capitalism, and the labor unions just take credit for it. They take credit for gains that would have happened even if they didn't exist, and the reality is the gains would have been greater had they not existed. So basically, they're taking credit for stuff that would have happened even better if they weren't in the way, messing it up. Labor unions are simply there to uh, perpetuate themselves, right? They live off the, 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 the salaries of the workers, right? And the workers are poorer as a result of the cost of maintaining these unions. And because of all the rules and all the, the, the requirements that the unions put in, the unions make the employers less competitive and less productive, and ultimately the workers suffer because it means that they get lower pay over time or they get no pay because the union makes the employer so uncompetitive that he goes bankrupt and everybody loses their job. I want to finish up this podcast by talking a little bit about uh, the late Senator John McCain. And, you know, I've been watching a lot of the media coverage of McCain, his funeral, and listening to uh, all the praise that is uh, being said about uh, John McCain, you know, not only by Republicans, but in particular uh, by Democrats. And, you know, I can't recall, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I just can't recall a senator receiving this kind of tribute, this kind of attention uh, after he died in my lifetime. First of all, he's now lying in state at the Rotunda in Capitol Hill. And if I remember correctly, maybe about 30 other Americans, maybe 31, 32, I forget the exact number, have lied in state in the last couple of hundred years. And of those, I mean, very few of them were just congressmen, senators. I mean, most of them are presidents, ex-presidents. They're important generals, right? Uh, there are very few senators that have received this honor. Over, over the last couple hundred years. I mean, again, maybe a handful of them, if that. I'm not even sure if there's five. And so, but yet McCain is getting this honor. Now, I know he's been in Congress for a long time, 36 years, I think. First, he was in the House of Representatives for a few terms, and then he got into the Senate in Arizona, and he took over the seat uh, that used to be occupied by Barry Goldwater, who re who resigned. Now, of course, Goldwater died, I mean, years later, I don't know, maybe 10, I forget how many years after he resigned, he died. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, uh, you know, lie in state. I mean, Barry Goldwater, to me, was a far better senator than John McCain. He also ran and lost uh, a presidential election. I mean, he lost to Lyndon Johnson. I mean, this would be a very different country today, I think, had um, a Barry Goldwater won uh, that election is 64. But uh, 
McCain took that seat. So he's been in Congress for 36 years and he died in office. And, and so I don't know, maybe that's part of it. Although, you know, it shows you how hard it is to get rid of a senator because a lot of times they do die in office because, you know, the campaign finance type laws, which John McCain helped write that McCain-Feingold bill, but the way they have the deck stacked, it's so hard to unseat one of these guys. So a lot of times, the only time you can get rid of a senator is if he dies out in office. And, and, and so, you know, that's what happened to John McCain. But the question is, why is he being honored to the extent that he did? Now, I know he was a war veteran. I mean, so maybe that is part of it. And I appreciate his service and the fact that he was a POW for all those years and he went through uh, torture, right? And so all that is very admirable. And I, you know, I certainly respect uh, and, and appreciate the service that John McCain gave to his country, even though, you know, I don't agree politically with the Vietnam War and I never have. I mean, I thought that that was a mistake. Uh, but because I thought the war was a mistake, it doesn't mean I feel any less respectful to the men and women who served in the Vietnam War, to the people who gave their lives in service to this country in the Vietnam War, right? Or to the the fathers or the mothers or the children, right, of of people who died serving their country in Vietnam. So I separate the idiot politicians who sent our young men to die in Vietnam and the young men that went and fought and died for their country. Now they shouldn't have died for their country because we shouldn't have sent them there. We should not have had that war. And, you know, there were some wars, of course, that were just, I think, I mean, I think World War II uh, was a war that we should have entered. But, you know, ironically, you know, World War One, we should have stayed out of World War One. I. I mean, I think that was a big mistake getting involved in that European war. And personally, I think that had America not entered World War One, I think the war would have ended anyway sooner on better terms. I mean, we, it wouldn't have been a complete defeat uh, for the Kaiser. And I think we would not have had this one-sided Treaty of Versailles, right? We wouldn't have beat Germany to a pulp because the, the Americans joining the war uh, really tilted uh, the war. And, and as a result of that, you know, you had the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic. And that gave rise to the Nazis and Adolf Hitler. And I personally believe that had there not been a World War I, there would not have been an Adolf Hitler. And had there not been an Adolf Hitler, there probably would not have been a World War II. So you could say that, you know, by going into World War I, we caused World War II. Now, I don't blame America for that because there's no way at the time anybody could have known that going into World War I was going to lead to something as horrific as Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust. So I blame the Holocaust and World War II on Hitler, not on, on the United States for having gone into World War I. But it just shows you, you know, Woodrow Wilson, oh, I want to make the world safe for democracy. Why? I mean, we should have minded our own business. That's what George Washington told us to do, to stay out of those European entanglements. So we should have stayed out of the Vietnam War. But that doesn't mean I have any less respect for the men who died in the First World War, you know, or the Korean War for that matter, you know. So I, I definitely see the idea that, hey, let's honor John McCain as a, a soldier, as a patriotic American who served his country honorably in battle. But what I don't get and I don't agree with is all of the flattering comments that are being made about John McCain, the senator, right? The legislature, like he's some kind of heroic figure, uh, this great uh, senator uh, that represents 
something that America has lost. Like, you know, he was this, you know, perfect guy, this perfect senator, this idealist who, you know, put country ahead of politics and did what was right. And, you know, it, it's something that we don't have anymore. And he represents, uh, you know, some bygone era that, that has been lost. None of this, I don't think, is true. I mean, I did not like McCain as a, a senator. And I didn't like most of the senators. I don't like most of the senators. He's been in Congress, mostly the U.S. Senate, for 36 years. And what has happened during those 36 years? The government has gotten bigger. You know, we have more debt. We have few, less individual liberty, less freedom. And John McCain was a part of all of that legislation. I mean, they want to honor McCain because he was a compromiser. He was bipartisan. That is part of the problem. If we had more senators over the years that stood on principle, I mean, John McCain was, you know, a a, a rhino, right? A Republican in name only or, you know, a, a, a neocon or whatever you want to call him. He was one of these Republicans that in many cases was indistinguishable from Democrats. Maybe that's why so many Democrats liked him, because they had so much in common. But that's not what makes a great senator, in my opinion. I like somebody who stands on principle and who is willing to fight for what they believe in, not sell their soul to the devil in order to pass some legislation that simply ends up growing government. I mean, even if you grow government by a little less than the the Democrats wanted to grow it, you're still going to grow. And of course, he helped uh, grow government in the areas where the Republicans wanted to grow it. I mean, I think we spend much too much money on the military in the United States. I mean, I think that the federal government should spend a lot more on the military as a percentage of the overall budget than it does now. So I think military spending should be a bigger percentage of what the federal government spends money on. But I think it should spend a lot less money on the military. I just think it should spend even less money on everything else. I want a smaller government, uh, but John McCain uh, wanted a bigger government, and he helped produce a bigger government. And so, in my mind, he is not, you know, this great senator that we should be praising for his years and years of service as a senator. If we want to praise him for the fact that he served us in the military as a soldier, yes, I, I'm, I'm all for that, and I respect what he did as a soldier. But I don't like what he did as a U.S. senator. Now I don't know. Maybe maybe he he had these principles that he believed in, but I don't share those principles. If he believed in big government, right? Well, I don't. And uh, and and the the values that are enshrined in our Constitution, and he swore an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, right? That's not what he was supposed to do. But the bottom line is, why is McCain, right? being treated the way he is. And I believe that why the media and the Democrats are just heaping so much praise on John McCain is because McCain didn't like Donald Trump and Donald Trump didn't like McCain. And so because McCain is now dead, the left and the Democrats want to throw McCain right back in the president's face. And in fact, McCain is probably achieving a lot more in death when it comes to you know going against Trump than he ever achieved in life. I mean, probably the best thing that McCain could do if his goal was to tear down Trump was to die, because now all of a sudden you know you've got all this stuff going on, 
And there's an old saying, right? The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if you're a Democrat and Trump is your enemy and McCain is his enemy, well, now McCain is your friend. And now you listen to these uh, Democrats talk about John McCain. It's like he's the last good Republican. It's like, oh, my God, there was one good Republican, one honorable man, and now he's dead. And so all the rest of them are horrible because the only good one has died. And if you listen to all the Democrats and all the stuff that they're saying about how great John McCain was, I think what they're really doing is, is, is uh, you know, knocking down Trump. The whole point of building up McCain is to tear Trump down. I mean, you'll actually hear them say, well, you know, he didn't want to build walls. Well, what's that about, right? He was so great because he didn't want to build walls. Well, who wants to build a wall? President Trump wants to build a wall. So all of the positive things that the left is saying, that Democrats are saying about McCain is really a subtle way to say something negative about Donald Trump. And of course, you know, McCain made a big deal about, you know, his criticism of Donald Trump while he was alive. Uh, You know, he was one of the never Trumpers. He was the lone vote that did not want to vote for this you know, phony uh, Obamacare repeal or whatever they had. He didn't vote for it. Uh, and so they had, to, they had to do something different. And even, you know, his final words, or he, he specifically requested that Trump not be at his funeral. So his absence from the funeral is, is very conspicuous. And now you have all these other uh, past presidents or uh, sitting uh, members of Congress from the left and right just talking about how great John McCain was. And one of the reasons he's great was because he was different from Trump, right? They, they, they want to praise the fact that he wasn't partisan so that they can highlight the fact that Donald Trump is, right? They want to, they want to basically take all the characteristics that they think Trump lacks and then put them into John McCain and then praise John McCain for, for having those characteristics so that they can highlight the fact that Donald Trump does not. And, you know, the media, of course, they love this, right? Because they know that, you know, heaping all this attention and praise on, on McCain is going to reflect badly on Donald Trump. The Democrats love it. Right now, you know, they want to rename one of these buildings uh, in, in, in Washington, the McCain building, and it's a Democrat that was proposing it, and it's named after a Democrat now. And they're saying, well, let's, get, let's take this Democrat down and let's put this Republican up. I mean, they probably would like to erect, the Democrats would probably like to erect a huge statue of John McCain and put it right in front of the White House so Donald Trump has to look at it every time he goes in and out. And in a way, you might want to think that one of the reasons, too, that the media wants to have nonstop coverage of John McCain. I mean, just go to MSNBC and you'll see all this coverage of John McCain. I mean, one of the most liberal networks out there, it's just constantly stories about McCain. Why is that? Because they probably know that President Trump is is flipping through the channels and they want to make sure that no matter which channel he turns to, there's John McCain. There's his coffin. There's an American flag. There's another person, a Democrat or Republican, talking about what a great man John McCain was uh, because he was willing to go against his own party. You know, if if he felt his own party was wrong, he was willing to go against his own party. He was his own man. He would reach across the aisle. He was willing to work with Democrats, right? All the things that Trump isn't doing. And of course, when they say that he was willing to go against his own party, they're talking about the fact that he was willing to go against Donald Trump. Trump. So, you know, I just, I find all this stuff disingenuous. Again, not that I don't respect 
the man. And not that I don't feel badly. Of course, he has family members that have lost a husband, a father. You know, his mother, his mother is still alive. I think she's 105 or 106 and she's lost her son. So, you know, my condolences would certainly go out uh, to the McCain family, to his mother, to his wife, to his children. Uh, They may have lost a great father, a great husband, a great son. And maybe he was a patriotic American and he served his country honorably in war. But I do not think he served his country well as a member of Congress. I think he stayed in Washington much too long and he was part of the problem. He was never part of the solution. Anyway, let me wish everybody a a happy Labor Day, especially all you employers out there. And, you know, if you have a boss, hey, let him know that you appreciate him. Let him know that you appreciate all the hard work that he's doing so that your paycheck doesn't bounce. Right. Anybody can sign the back of a paycheck. Right. When it comes time uh, to cash it or deposit it, it's much harder to sign the front of a paycheck and to make sure that there's money in the bank so that those paychecks don't bounce.